Good day. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Uh, broadcasting to you today from Lake Tahoe, where I've been sort of holed up with uh, a lot of friends of the show and the Gamers with Jobs guys. And my panel today, uh, first, our friend and freelance writer, Julian Murdoch. Hello. Welcome back to the show, sir. It's been a while. It has indeed. I, we have things to talk about, though, so it's exciting. We have so much to talk about. And a big part of what we have to talk about is an upcoming project that we've been sort of playtesting this this uh, week from Ironwall Games designer Rob Davio. Hello. Welcome back to the show, Rob. Thanks. Good to be here. You know, we, we've spent the last several days uh, playing the hell out of uh, your <laughs> upcoming uh, legacy game, uh, Seafall. And before we get into today's topic, which is really... The art of playtesting, the craft of playtesting, and changing games, and getting feedback, and giving feedback as a tester. Uh, give us a quick thumbnail of what Seafall is. Uh, Seafall is a legacy game, which means that some actions that you uh, do in one game carry on to the next one. It's something I did um, for Risk Legacy, which we talked about in an earlier episode. Uh, Seafall is a game of exploration, um, basically set during the Age of Sail in a world like ours, but not exactly like ours. So each player plays a, an empire or a nation going out and trying to achieve glory in kind of like almost a 4X game sort of way. You, you can trade and explore and, and build up your ships and your cities, uh, fight each other, find islands, find what's on them. And the idea is to sort of explore this vast ocean and build a narrative of these empires and how they put their thumbprint on the world. And I remember that this game has actually been in, it went into uh, playtesting fairly recently. Uh, You you sort of broadened the pool of players, correct? I did. There is maybe a dozen groups right now that that got a version, and it's a little earlier than I wanted to send it to playtesters, and I'm going to send them an email sort of acknowledging that, but I'm giving myself a deadline of next year. So I wanted as many people as I could to find as many issues as I could. But the the flip side is they're getting pretty big changes pretty regularly, which normally for a game wouldn't be a big deal. But because it's a legacy game, they've already like printed out a board and a map and, you know, explored things and written on it. And I have to go, yeah, you got to print that all over and start again from game one. And so I suspect pretty soon I'm going to get some dropouts from that, <laughs> which I don't mind. I fully expect it. And I, and I saw it with Risk Legacy that you just get a burnout. They're like, I can't, I can't reset back to start and do this again. I, I would, it's actually one of my biggest questions because, uh, you know, I've played this game in a couple different versions as mm-hmm. you've been sort of making it. And you always just sort of show up. So I get the easy part, right? You just show up and you're like, here's some stuff. Let's try this. But you're now working with this broader playtest group and you're playing with a game that's got like unlocks in it and things like that. It's really different than, you know, I, you know if Daniel Solis sends me a card game PDF, I can print a bunch of those out and I can play the game in an hour. And, and it, it, there's really low investment as a playtester in something like that. How do you even handle things like unlocks in a playtest group? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, just hearing the idea of here's a card game, try it. I'm like, why did I go down this road of madness? <laughs> the unlocks are separate PDFs. Okay. So. And, and it basically, I say and they're zipped up. They're a zip file. And I say, don't unzip and even look at anything until you reach this point in the game. Okay. Um, and then what I try to do is make it really easy to understand right away. So you're playing the game. You get to that point where you have to open it. And you don't want everything to stop for an hour. You want them to kind of open it and go, oh, I see what's going on right. here. Um, and I even say, like, you know, just open it at the end of the game. So you say, oh, it would have happened here. Open it, but don't integrate it. Finish it out and then read it, you know, before your next play session. So you're not doing downtime but no it's it's not easy um i didn't realize how much of a 
oh, what's the word I'm looking for? With, with Risk Legacy, the fact that I had made a number of Risk games and it was a stable engine that existed for 50 years, whether you love it or hate it, at least it was. And everyone who bought Risk Legacy or 99% of them had played Risk. Right, so they had a baseline. They had a baseline, like, here's Risk. We've tweaked a few things and at the end of the game, you get to do these rewards. And you're like, cool, got it, let's go. I mean, one of the problems I'm having with this game is to get people from, hey, that sounds like a fun game, to taking their first turn, way too long. Right. Way too much information well, to parse like right now. it's a big Euro game. It's, it's a big Ameritrash Euro adventure sprawling empire building Even game. Even without any of the legacy stuff yes. in it. Right. Well, and I think one of the really complicating factors is, you know, I've been playing it a lot this week, and I mean, the similarities to a PC4X are just incredible. Like this is, you know, it, it's in many ways it's very unboard game life, like in some in some major ways, which uh, seems to have been an issue that you're you're sort of you you've identified a tension between the experience of the one game that people sit down to play and making that matter in itself. Like I want to win this game, just you know, to be the best, whatever. And then the longer arc of the legacy uh, series, which is, you know, oh, this one game is just but one stepping stone in a broader, you know, tale we're telling. Yeah, and I I've messed up the balance there. I got a note from a playtester this morning which really kind of encapsulated, which is if if you're just focusing on winning this game and there's not enough connective tissue between games, then it's really not a legacy game. It's just a game, which is great, but it doesn't deliver on the promise. What it's doing now is the pendulum swung way too far the other way, that the games have become mini chapters in a larger game, and so people aren't playing to win that chapter. They're kind of playing the long game, like, oh, I'm just going to make my ships really powerful so that I can be winning in games six, seven, eight, nine. Right. And too many things are carrying over, so if you have a bad game two or three and make some bad decisions... You can't get back into it. So I got a cross-country flight today, and I'm going to be <laughs> picking a machete to my own game. And I'm, I'm both excited and frightened by it because I, I think I see how it'll make it better, and I know it'll make it better. I want the emphasis back on I want to win this game, not I'm going to spend this game just kind of upgrading stuff, and, and then I'm going to win next game. That, I don't want that. It's way too easy in this game well, to do that. Pres- presumably, if you, if you have a game, I mean, that's certainly a viable game idea, right? That you could have a game where you're playing this epically long game, and, and you, know, you expect to have the same group of players forever. Uh, and, and all that matters is winning you know, two and a half months from now or yeah. something like that. So that's, that could be a thing. But one of the things that was so cool about Risk Legacy was that while there was persistence and there were certainly rewards for being the same group playing all the time, it wasn't really strictly required, right? You could, you could pull, I mean, I've been to game stores where they have a copy of Legacy sitting on the communal shelf and you pull it down and they're like on game nine. Yep. And you can sort of say, oh, this is what the world looks like. And you can just sit down and start playing. And while maybe it's not the same as if it was, quote, unquote, your copy, it's still totally viable. Yeah. And that's what, one thing that's come from, the, from Seafall right now is you really need the same ex- people and the same exact number of people, which I don't want. It's not a good proposition to person buying the game. I'm going to be like, hey, you get four friends and play this. And if someone can't be there, they're screwed. Right. Like that's <laughs> uh, <laughs> I wouldn't buy that game. So I don't want that right. to be the other way. And I, and I think that breakthrough of really focusing back down on um, fewer things continuing from game to game. That things continue a game need to be special, and they're not special. It's more the exception that something doesn't carry through rather than the rule. Like in the game, you can get goods, you can get gold, you can upgrade ships, you can build cities, you can sort of increase your, your hand of advisors you use to do actions, and everything but goods and gold carries through. So at the end of the game, if you've got a bunch of goods in your warehouse and a bunch of gold you don't get to use, you're really frustrated that it all gets flushed out. Right. So anyone who follows that path is losing, where people who just make their ships more powerful 
even if it's not leading them to victory, are in a fantastic place. And right. so I need to make fewer things carry over. And I need to make it that the winner really gets to decide what carries over. So you want that advantage at the end of the game. You want to be like, I want to win because I want this to happen for me, which will help me a little bit in the next game. Of course, it can't help too much because right. then you get runaway leader syndrome. But everything else is going to right. um, flush away, which leads me to the fact if, if, for example, if you upgrade your ships right now, it's kind of expensive. You have to go, get, like, go out to an island, get a good, get some money, bring it back upgrade it and it gets more and more expensive so you start with uh, two guns on your ship and you can go up to six so the third one costs eight gold and the fourth one costs 12 and it you know it goes up and um i just need to cut all those numbers like 20 percent. so this sounds I, so if you haven't played the game some of what you just were talking about may be like well i have no idea what rob's talking about but i'm, I'm actually was th thinking of the meta narrative that's going on in your head and my question isn't about any of that content how do you know when you're freaking done like, like, I mean, it, 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 you don't have a hard deadline. This is your game. Presumably you have things you would like to have done by a certain point in yeah. time. But how do you, like, th it sounds like that could go on forever. Well, it could, and it won't. Um, <laughs> it's good when, I, I don't know, I've done this for 15 years. It's never done, but the law of diminishing return says, oh, if I spend another two months on this, it'll make it 2% better but that's two months I'm not getting income from selling it, <laughs> right? So, you know, at, you reach a point right now, I need to spend the time to make it 100% better, right? I'm not even close to getting to that, but I'll eventually, eventually get to the point where I'm like, yeah, is that the right name on that card? It's, you know what, it's good enough. Right. So there's two issues, and they're, and they're kind of connected. Uh, the first is kind of just, when I think about my experiences with like PC strategy games uh, and and when board games have transitioned to online versions like A Few Acres of Snow, the, the difference between sort of board game playtesting where you get a very small sample size really of how many games people burn through uh, compared to what happens when something moves to PC where like people can just crank on it because there's no setup time, there's no takedown time. You can just play it again and again and again and really identify like probabilities and trends that are going to be inherent in every game and it makes balancing, in some ways it seems to make balancing a little easier because you get more hard data to work with. Where it sort of seems like you have the have this issue of you're, you're working with small sample size uh, and then the game is changing as it goes on. And you've also got to be factoring in now it's no longer the same game by game four. And it's not even the same game that play group, play group two is doing. It's now, you know, they've kind of diverged a little bit and that just seems to be maddening. That seems to be a maddening game balancing <laughs> what were test. You, thinking? I, you know, I get to the point last night we were up late. There had been some wine consumed. You had finished your fifth game of Seafall and you started talking about it. And all I said is, I hate this game and I don't want to talk about it anymore. And I just went to bed. Right? And that's which, why I took Rob's Manhattan away. Yeah, which actually is a good point. You actually have to kind of bottom out in that sense. But to get back to your question about it, um, my last year at Hasbro, I was working on a number of games that were partnership with Zynga. And they were sort of, they would ask like, well, how many times did you play test this? Like, I don't know, eight, 10 around the office. And they're like, What? Because they're so data-driven. I mean, you know, they knew everything that everyone was doing, and they could make these predictive things and kind of and tweak it. And it's a qualitative analysis. It's not quantitative, which is why one of my jobs, which was unexpected when I started doing this, is getting the right people to play the game and then pull the right threads out to make the right changes. So I, I become this sort of observer and editor, which is why I don't play the games when we're playtesting. I like to be on the outside, because also I'll change rules on the fly as you guys are playing. As you know, I'm like, that's not working. 
uh, all buildings half off. Right. And if I'm playing, then it, there, even though you know I'm not doing it to win the game, there's always the perception to be like, oh yeah, sure, you're gonna change, com- <laughs> you're gonna change combat now, so you can sink my shit. You know, it comes up every time. So I, right. I've taken myself out when I get to this stage, so I can kind of make changes and observe be more things. Of a DM. Yeah. It is. It's trying to kind of keep the plate spinning. Do you think that data is anywhere near as important for a board game? Because, uh, you know, Julian, I, I think we both agree that like a few acres of snow is one of our favorite games. It also has balance issues. Right. Well, and but, I just don't care that but much. But it depends. I think this is a really interesting distinction between types of games, right? So the two games I can think of that have had major flaws or major balance issues pointed out because of a move to online play are Twilight Struggle and A Few Acres of Snow, arguably two of my favorite strategy games of all time. In A Few Acres of Snow, this sort of an undefeatable or nearly undefeatable strategy emerged through thousands of plays of a two and a half hour war game, right? which you're obviously never going to do before you print the damn thing. Um, and with Twilight Struggle, again, you know, it just people started realizing, huh, there's a 60% win rate for Russia. Right. And that became only evident after people had played hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of games and logged them so that you could keep track of it as data. Um, the, the, while that sounds daunting, and if I was in your shoes, Rob, building a sort of pure big strategy war game, the, you know, that would be always in the back of my head. With something like a legacy game, it's not like people are going to be playing the same legacy path 20 or 30 times to discover some flaw in that part of the system because the game itself is going to change after game one. Yeah. So it's, I don't know I, why I, I came guess, up with this idea. I, I get, well, no, actually it seems to me that actually that may be something you don't have to worry about so much. As long as you have a sort of a core engine that basically works, your issues are much more the long game. Uh, yeah. One thing that I do in these legacy games is um, I try to provide in the unlocks that come in the game, um, which I don't know if we talked about. I think it's like the ga- the games tend to have built-in packets that you only open up if you achieve a certain thing. Like right now, there's one that says if you sell 30 gold on the market, get 30 gold in one turn, right? You just made a big killing on the market. You open up a packet, you get new rules, new materials, new narrative twists. I try to put in those packets tools for the players to rebalance their own game. So um, in Risk Legacy, which um, I'm still going to avoid some spoilers, there's some things like but I'll, I'll give one away. I mean, it's been out for two years. Um, the first couple games is High Roller picks their, picks their faction, picks their starting location, goes first. Tremendous advantages across the board, but it gets you into the game quickly. Um, very soon after, you open something that changes it to a draft mechanic, where now you're going to either go first or get the faction you like, or start where you want, or start with some resources. And because of this draft, it really rebalances out. The reason you don't start the game with that draft is be very difficult to learn and a real burden in game one to be like i don't know what to draft i don't know what's good i don't know what's bad so you learn through a couple games and just when you start to go wow we're all going first is really power oh there it you know it fixed it but i just give them the tools you could still draft poorly right and and so i'm trying to always in these games where i say okay around game 10 someone might be winning militarily someone might have come up with a killer combo what stuff can i put in for the players to get the leader now, you've got a lot of playtest groups out there, but this is one of uh, a handful of times you've had a chance to see a group really just crank through the game, right? Just run it over and over again with one group of players. Like, I get the sense that's not something you've had too many opportunities to observe. Uh, no, because it's a long game to learn and to try to get people to play it. I get insights not from game one. I mean, that's what I did for years, is keep replaying game one. Um, but now it's like, oh, game one's fine. 
but by game five, it's not. So every time I push it a little further, but because of the time commitment and the level of players I need, I need people who are comfortable playing, learning a meaty game and playing one that's in flux as I'm changing it around them. It's just a hard to get that group together. I've also been thinking about this nonstop. So I assume everyone else is fatigued by it too, which isn't the case, but you know, like when I put on the table, I'm kind of like, sorry guys, I just, here's my game, here's my game again. <laughs> but I'm really interested in the difference, like the, the, for you, the qualitative difference between sort of that remote feedback that you get from groups sort of spread around the country. Mm -hmm. And then what you get as a designer out of watching five people, four people oh, sit down and play the game. I, I would much prefer to be watching every group personally to, I get so much more out of it because I can see what they're doing. Even though they do a really good job of writing up, here's what happened in our game. It's kind of lengthy, right? You're reading it. So what I do is there's a message board and they're putting up different questions in places and I'm looking for common threads. Like for one example, one thing is people kept saying the game was over quickly too fast. It felt like thematically and emotionally, we were just getting into it and it's over. It didn't have a narrative arc of beginning, middle, and it's beginning, middle, over. Mm -hmm. um, so I see that as a common thread from different places. So it's my job as a designer at the stage to go, okay, that's coming from different places. Um, and sometimes I'll dig into it and say, how much longer would you like it to go? Right. It leads, it's a question and answer thing. It's not as good, but it gives me more people play testing. One, problem with playtesting with one group is it has a play style and it's got biases and you as a designer of biases you say like this is how I want it to be played and you need to get people preferably strangers to play it because they won't have the same biases and they have to actually learn it from a rule book too which no. is radically different than having you explain the game I know I know and it's so I've had to make the rule book much more robust than I'd usually do the rules at this time um which is good because it kind of keeps me honest. And if I'm trying to struggle with a paragraph and how to make it work, then I can step back and say, well, maybe the rule's bad. Not right, the, right. If not, I can't not, explain this in text, yeah. then clearly I'm an idiot. I need yeah. to step back and do it. Um, yeah. I, I know that uh, maybe you didn't bring it up in this podcast. We just recorded a Gamers with Jobs uh, conference call as well. It's just podcast uh, mania today. But you were talking about uh, body language at the table yeah. and like what people are doing. And that just seems like, what are you... What are you looking for and what send up red flags when you're just seeing group people playing the games while you're watching them? If they kind of collapse into themselves, right? If they kind of pull back from the table and they're not really engaging with other people and they're kind of, if they take out their phone, you know you're in trouble, right? Because <laughs> they're not thinking about the next move and this is a meaty game and, and I've lost them from sort of the game bubble experience, right? They've, they've stepped out. Now, it'll happen sometimes just because it's a longer game in, it, in its life. Um, but I'm wa watching to see if there's trash talk um, because people start trash talking and start joking around when they're enjoying the game in the process. I'm looking to see if random moves are creating a narrative, right? If all of a sudden, um, like Sean Andrich was the scourge of the sea, are people giving him a hard time still? Is, is a story developing around the group of people who are playing the game rather than just the mechanics themselves, right? So the mechanics have disappeared. You're using these mechanics, but then the people around the table are telling a story. And that's, that's when I know it's working when you're, you're talking that way as opposed to, oh, this is a four and this, you know, and they, when they're struggling with the mechanics and how they work, then the game is, you know, you're not enjoying the drive. You're not looking out the window. You're like trying to fiddling with a car that I said this, it has one square wheel, right? Three of them are working great and one square. And so you're too focused on that. So I want the mechanics to bleed away and the story to develop. Rubber meets the road time. Now, yeah. we all tell you we like the game. And I, 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 I will say I do like the game. Yeah. I, I enjoy what I played. When you watch us play, do we like the game? Do we like it as much as you want us to? I don't, you don't like it as much as 
I want you to because of the state it's in, it's perfectly normal. And I think some of you like it more than others. So I was always encouraged when I think you in particular be like, hey, let's get a game of Seafall in. I was like, oh, good. I'm not asking you. You're asking for it. That's a good thing because we're friends. You might be like, oh, I got to do this thing for Rob again. Right. <laughs> and so I'm always wanting to know when I overstay my welcome. I think that, yeah, I think more people were positive about it than negative. Everyone could see the flaws. And I think that there was a group of people who enjoyed brainstorming solutions in real time. Like we could sort of play the game and then stop and say, well, this isn't working or I'm doing this strategy and I feel it would never win, but it should win. It should be a viable option. And we could sort of be spitballing ideas around and brainstorming. So it, you didn't have the true narrative gameplay experience because you're not supposed to at this point. You're supposed to have its game workshop with little 20-minute periods of playing the game in between. Julian, you've been playing a bit of At the Gates. Right. Uh, our, our buddy John Schaefer's uh, kickstarted an inaugural uh, indie, indie strategy game. And I don't know how it is for you, but when it comes to like giving feedback, because that's definitely the, the, sta- the state this game is in, At the Gates. Yeah, it's very, alpha. very similar. Like alpha state, things are changing, whole systems may go away or come back in. Right, and sort of like we do with Rob here, uh, you've sort of got the direct line of John Schaefer and everything, but when it comes to giving that sort of feedback, I'm always a little hesitant like that I'm going to like screw it all up right because like when i would when i would lose a game narrowly because I'm, I'm a really awful sport at board games i'm just, I'm just <laughs> you unbearable. are I, I i concur and so i would have to like i would have to like take five minutes and be like okay so that happened and we're gonna accept it <laughs> and we're gonna work through it and then we're going to think about whether you think that really worked as a game separating sort of the experience from well my strategy didn't right. work I'm I lost so good. therefore this game is broken and here's how we should yeah, fix it and so I really hesitate <laughs> like I get really hesitant about what sort of feedback I, I offer because I'm really worried that like my subjective biases are going to you know play in too strongly to my assessment of the game and right. certainly was that state you know like it becomes I just want to say that you should always say whatever you want. It's my job as the designer to filter things out, right? So if I can't do my job of saying like, oh, you know, Rob keeps saying this and this approach, but this is because he's frustrated that he's not winning. And then it's up to me to decide, is he just having a bad time? Is he frustrated by not winning? Is there a problem in the mechanics? You know, what are the elements that I need to pull out of what you're saying to integrate in? And am I hearing him from other places? So it's my job. You, You... when giving feedback to a game, the responsibility always weighs on the designer. If they allow themselves to go down a wrong path because some one playtester keeps shouting at them, that's the, the failure's on them right. to do it. But, but the interesting dynamic difference, because I think uh, it is so interesting that, that John Schaefer is going through what feels more like a traditional board game design process where he's really throwing some shit up on the wall and saying, well, what do you guys think? Um, but he's doing it on, in pixels on this thing that installs on your computer. And so it has this feeling of permanence that when, you know, Rob, when you roll a, a, you know, a map out on the table that's, you know, 18 pieces of paper taped together with clear tape. And here's a Sharpie because we're going to put an island down somewhere. There's a natural sense of, oh, we're like, I'm helping make something. And if this doesn't work, Rob reaches over and he just crosses something out on the board and says, well, we'll try it that way. And of course, that's also exactly what's happening with At the Gates, Right. The, the reality is, you know, he's taking feedback and he's saying, oh, well, we'll try this system instead. And he's going in and tweaking code. But there is this weird sense that that is somehow more permanent and inviolable. And the thing that you are seeing is this done product because it's software that you're installing. I've been watching um, Bill Harris uh, from Dubious Quality go through the process of playtesting and building his own 
quasi board card game. It's a it's a solitaire game loosely tied to football. Gridiron Solitaire and, and talking and seeing how he's been prototyping that as well. And, and there, even he is having that sense with his own game of there's this permanence to it because it's this PC thing that, that looks done as soon as you install it. Cause you're used to that process. Um, so, you know, with John, he's been really, really upfront about, Hey, I'm still at the point where I'm testing whether or not things are even remotely fun. Like the, mm-hmm. not, not like, does the AI work and is it competitive, but like, is it actually entertaining in any way to send your scout out to go find a mine and then send a surveyor to go to that mine and, and discover what is in the mine and then send a laborer out to do, you know, to build the iron mine or are these too many steps and none of them are interesting. And it just wrote, right. Those are very fundamental game design questions. Kind of like the ones you're wrestling with. Is this fun at all? Does the system even get you anywhere? Interesting, right. Are there, are the decisions themselves feeling important? Um, but I'm curious to see how that's going to work because in the playtest forums for at the gate so far, almost all the feedback is purely the buggy kind like, Oh, I did this thing and it crashed. Or I thought, you know, I expected this behavior for clicking on a button. I got this other behavior instead. And I'm not seeing a lot of the, you know, what I think he probably needs the most, which is the, by the way, this is really boring and it would be much more interesting if I could just go beat up on the Romans earlier. Yeah. You know, that's that's an interesting uh, tension as well. The fact that you have, to a degree, it seems like you really actually have to set expectations for your, for your testers. Like, no, 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 here's, here's what's up for discussion. Like, here's what I want feedback on. And like where, where John's game is at, it's like, no, we're, we're at fundamental ideas stage here and you're playing it. You're treating it like it's software development at this point, but it's, right. it's really not, you know, if, if the thing crashes every f- five minutes, that's cause it's, 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 ba- it's like one, like two cuts above a prototype. Right. Although I guess in that case, he has to, he, you know, Rob doesn't have to worry so much about your game actually crashing. Although, I don't know. I think it crashed hard last night. Yeah, it, <laughs> board games crash. It hard locked. Yeah, yeah. It basically board games do crash. You, the problem is you don't know it and you keep playing. <laughs> right. It is. Keep it, clicking you, on the. Button. You know, you've reached the point where it's not going to work. Either it's not going to end or it's not going to be fun or or something. But it doesn't give you any feedback. So you keep playing until eventually you're like. Why it's been three hours and no one's won, right? <laughs> and you come back like, well, you should stop playing after now. You just didn't see that the rules were broken. So, so there's one example from your game that I find really interesting, and I'm hoping we can talk about it just a little bit because I've been fascinated to see you sort of wrestle with it. Uh, which is Seafall has this feature called Enmity Cards, uh, as empires conduct violent actions against one another, against uh, you know, and like NBC uh, things, uh, like islanders out there. They, they they spend you sort of had this idea for an economy of violence in the game in the form of these enmity tokens that we passed back and forth, and it really seems like it's on the one hand it is supposed to function like a traditional economic model with resources being traded back and forth between players, but on the other hand it behaves so differently from say resources that used to build it behaves so differently from money that it's created this kind of mind-boggling level of intricacy and uh, like the, the system is simple making it work seems to be proving to be remarkably nuanced and difficult yeah i still like the idea i mean i could take it out entirely um but i like the idea that some actions that are sort of reproachful right like if you do something where everyone else decides to be like ooh. you're a dick you're a dick <laughs> like you know if you just go sink someone's ship out of the blue like i'm just going to attack you and sink your ship like the person whose ship sinks gets mad and they want revenge. 
And so I thought it'd be neat for you to be able to like physically get a card from the attacker and then you hold their empire card and it's marked with them and you can hold it up and wave it and be like, revenge is coming, right? I'm going to get you back. And by having one or more of these cards, when you exact revenge, you'll be a little stronger. You'll roll more dice. You'll be a little more powerful. Like your favorite enemy is a bard. Right. Yeah, it's a, a ranger. <laughs> ranger, sorry. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, it's like having a favorite enemy. And so you would have this currency of you do something mean to me. I have a couple of your cards. I push them back and send them back to you. And we have this little war going on. Also, because you have a fixed number of these cards, I didn't want the game... I wanted to limit it. Like almost like you basically get... Uh, I'm trying to think of the like word, but you know, like... After you're out of cards, you can't do any more violent actions. You can actions. only be so much of a dick. dick before, like, the, the sort of the game says, "Stop, go find something else to do." Until <laughs> and revenge is coming. I still like the idea, and it all came from the idea of thinking of Age of Colonization about the resentment between France and England, which sort of has gone away because Germany got uppity in the 20th century, but it's still there, right? If I go to England or France, they just love to sort of take pokes at the other one, and sort of this lingering resentment and. It's just not working. I don't know what it is. I think if someone does something and you've got their cards, you don't want to give them back. The idea of having something over someone is better right now than actually exacting that revenge. And so everyone's cards end up with someone else and then no one fights, right? And no, like revenge never happens. Right. And and one of the key, one of the coolest things about that mechanic to me was the idea of, um, you know, this being a game where you're not necessarily always going to play, like, I'm always going to play with Rob, and I'm always going to play Yellow, and that's just the way the game's going forever. The idea that these enmity cards carry over so that you've got this sort of historical relationship between the superpowers in the game yeah. is super cool, right? Because now it's like I sit down to play Yellow, and I look and see what's in front of Yellow, and I'm like, oh, I really hate Red. That's cool. Now I have some context for how I'm going to play this next game, even if I haven't seen any of the previous games. I think that's what's what made last night's game so interesting and so instructive in some ways because it was like one of the features of Seafall is that the the goalposts kind of shift and move. The what is more valuable as a victory uh, a victory track begins to shift over time and it evolves with the game and that's not locked down. But like yesterday was our fifth game and people were sort of swinging for the fences at a few things. Like you started to see more like, you know, aggressive play in some ways. And it was it was it was finally the game where it was like here are places where like the game is now completely breaking. You know, I tried to do an action at the end of the game where it was like oh, the system no longer supports this action at all at this stage of the game. Yeah, I, I don't remember what you tried to do. What was it? I tried to sink a ship. Uh, you didn't and have I enough a, enmity cards left. And there's no way, because I also had a power that let me burn extra enmity. Uh, so I was yes. able to basically throw extra, I would be giving an advantage to my opponent down the road. It's it, you know, it's like I'm burning the Spanish fleet and maybe I'll One destroy their armada, but yeah, yeah, but the next time they come after me, they're going to be, you know, they're going to be playing hard. And the problem is that... Um, the economy had just sort of drained out of resources. Yeah, you ran out of enmity to pull off the maneuver that you wanted to do because it's the idea behind it I still want to do is it goes out from you to someone else, it comes back to you, it goes back and forth, that you've got a, a viable right. number to always make the big move if you've calculated. You can't make two big moves maybe in the same game. Yeah. Um, but you can make one, and I think that it's it's just not working. Yeah, but it was but it was really interesting to see sort of how both you're trying to figure out how to get players to view this resource you've given them that is frankly kind of novel. There's not a lot of games where you've seen something like this done, so it's kind of like that that psychological impact of I think I'd just rather hoard 
these advantages I've gotten because I don't the idea of the advantage is actually more valuable to me than any actual way I can spend it. Right. Which so I need to change the system in a couple ways. I need to have it that if you hoard it, it's really either it gets taken from you slowly over time, like use yeah. it or lose it. Resentment fades as either within the game or between games. Or I need to make it much more interesting to use it than to hold it. So because I want to get a game of Sherlock Holmes consulting detective in before our Tahoe vacation uh, comes to its end, I, there's, there was an issue I wanted to bring up uh, toward the end uh, to, to put to you guys. It's a, it's a sort of recurring theme on the show. It's a bit of an obsession is how important is balance really to, to both of you? Because on the one hand, like, yes, it's important that Seafall works, just functions as a game. But at the same time, I do wonder if you know, balancing all the winner's advantages, all the things that carry over between games. Is it net, is it, how important is it that stuff balances versus it becomes sort of a satisfying arc over the life of the game? Uh, more the latter for me, uh, especially for a game of this type, which is supposed to be epic and narrative and, and campaign-based. I don't want the game to be imbalanced, but I don't expect it. I don't think it's possible to make it finely tuned. I mean, there's just too many parameters and say every group that plays every game all of the advantages and disadvantages will weigh out. But it shouldn't break. shouldn't be by game seven you go, ugh. We can't play anymore. We can't play Red's anymore. Red's going to win. Red's going to win every time, and it's just not fun. Right. I, for me, uh, you know, I, games that are obviously unbalanced become unfun pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So, so I think there, there is sort of a limit to it. You know, in the traditional wargaming space, you know, does it bug me that in Twilight Struggle, Russia has a 60% win rate? No, but I like knowing that going in. Like if I'm playing the U.S., you know, I like knowing that the odds are against me in some way. And, you know, the, obviously in the in traditional wargaming space, traditional strategy gaming space, you just play this, you know, two out of three and, you know, whoever wins more wins. Um, and, and those kinds of solutions, I think, are satisfying for straight up head to head type games. You know, a few acres of snow, you and I have played plenty of times where we like, you know, swap three times in a row um, to just sort of see who's got the number on that player at the, that moment um, on something where you're dealing with a lot more moving parts like in Seafall or, or any big multiplayer strategy game, something like, you know, game of Thrones that we were also playing this week where you've got five big competitors all pushing with different advantages. Um, balance matters a lot less because there that narrative between the players really is what's going to make the game interesting because let's face it normally i mean you just take a classic game like risk or you know something that's really straightforward the games can be unbalanced because of the players at the table so much more easily than the system right you get one person at the table who's just like yeah screw it i don't care whether i win or lose i'm just gonna like you know make this game about me being chaos maker that completely unbalances almost every strategy game. Somebody who deliberately is not playing the optimal victory path yeah. is hugely unbalancing. And to some extent, every player does that in every game. Right? Everybody makes suboptimal decisions because, oh, it's going to be so satisfying when I run Zachney against the wall because three weeks ago we were playing EU and he did this to me. Right? Those, we, all, we all make those non-mechanical decisions. That's what makes games fun. Right? That's why multiplayer games are interesting is because of the people, not because of the systems. So as long as the system is fundamentally functional, a little bit of imbalance here and there doesn't bug me. All right, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, this has been a fantastic vacation, and I think one of the highlights has been playing so much Seafall and sort of seeing this game shift between rounds. And I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing what you end up releasing next year. 
So am I. <laughs> it's a card game. <laughs> Welcome to the card game. It costs eleven dollars. Yep. It's got thirty-six cards, and it in doesn't it. change. <laughs> All right, uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, good night, everybody. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>